fair food forager. Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair food forager. Welcome to this return of the Fair Food Forager podcast, the mobile app that helps you share and find ethical and sustainable food, and any ideas really on how you can make the world a better place. So today we talk to Susie Crick, who is the National Chair of the Surfrider Foundation. Susie tells us about how she came to be involved with Surfrider. She talks about her connection to the ocean and some of the things that she's trying to do gives us a few little tidbits of advice on how we can do more in protecting our ocean and our planet in general. We just have a general chit-chat because we've known each other for a while and it's always fun to catch up with friends, which is what this podcast is all about. So sit back and relax or walk or whatever you do while you're listening to a podcast and listen to the Fair Food Forager and Friends show. for the Fair Food Forager podcast and good afternoon to Susie Crick who is the National Chair of the Surfrider Foundation and the South Coast President of the Surfrider Foundation. So hello Susie. Hi Paul, thanks for having me on your show. What I would like to talk about is we've just had these or we're still having these bushfires in Australia and uh, I think the whole world knows about the predicament Australia is in and as people who are interested in the environment how do you keep upbeat and how, how do people keep going when they feel like everything's against them? That's a really good question Paul and it's funny you ask that because last week just all the smoke and the ash was really getting to me and I live north of Wollongong and we weren't even directly affected as such in that um, you know it, the fire wasn't at our back door and yet that constant smoke was really starting to get to me and I thought hang on you've, you've got to be a leader here and be positive and not get sucked up into all the media and all of the, the negativity that I mean you can't really avoid it I mean what's happened is catastrophic it's apocalyptic but you just have to think of what was helping me was thinking of how would I try and inspire hope in um, in the kids like we can't be all doom and gloom old people with this we've got to somehow directly directly take action and keep ourselves busy so we don't get sucked down into that negativity I mean my own social media feeds were just horrifying to see all the reports from friends and family further down the coast it was pretty crazy look by human nature we are survivors nature is a survivor and I think we just have to keep that hope in the forefront of our minds as you said we were very lucky here so far we've been very lucky where we live but seeing everything that was going on down the coast in particular because it is our playground as well down Absolutely. there and and wondering how can I help? And then, you know, apart from some small donations, nobody can do this on their own. 
No. So, and we need numbers. We need lots of people who are, you know, acting in the right way for the environment and and changing things. And everyone has different skills. Yeah. And of course, Surfrider is very active, especially with our oceans. And you know, the we've seen Surfrider being super active and inspiring on what they're doing with the, particularly the Equinor. The fight for the bike thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, when when the bushfires started, like, really impacting, I was thinking, how can we as an organisation make a difference? And Surfrider in the US, who are a very big, and they're a big machine over there, they were saying, hey, Susie, who do we donate to? And I was thinking, we need to get straight to the communities. Um, a lot of the, or, I mean, so many millions have been donated already, and yet, my friends down the coast who have lost their homes, they're living in cars, you know, they're being told, oh, here, come and take some clothes and some food. And yes, they certainly need that short term. But, you know, we're just going to have to figure out a way to move forward, how we can directly help the communities that have been impacted. And there's so many of them. And it's, you know, it's not just on our south coast, Paul. Um, I was recently over in WA and the the air highway across the Malabar was closed for six days and the temperatures there were in excess of 48 degrees, people in their cars, there was no shade. I mean, they had no reprieve. They were there, stuck. And, you know, how we haven't had more casualties out of this, I don't know, but it just shows you how wonderful human nature is. And like I said, we're survivors. The Aussie spirit, I mean, my goodness, we... We are coping so well with this, and yet I feel really ridiculous saying that because I haven't even been impacted. I haven't lost my home. I just have to find a way that we can empower communities to come and help those that have been affected. You know, we need to get down there with our with our actual wallets and help these people directly. We need to bring down, you know, shovels and spades and hammers and say, hey, how can I help you rebuild that shed? Or, I don't know, this is where the human spirit is really going to be tested. Globally, there's been so much media about the catastrophic nature of the fires. And it's good that the whole world are now awake to what's happening because um, it almost seems like what's happening here is a, is a um, could almost be like a bit of a taste for what could happen unless we start really looking after our earth and looking after the environment. Um, my, my own daughter was doing um, long shifts down the south coast and she kept encouraging others to become aware of the indigenous um, fire, the practices that has saved the countries, the Australian countryside for hundreds of thousands of years. And I think, you know, we have to start reflecting on those practices as well mm. not just relying on the person that's writing the the policy in government at the moment look I don't want to get political um, because now is not the time for that it's not the time for blame we actually have to get in there and help get in there at the ground level and you know assist these people with more than just our old clothes or whatever mm. yeah I think one like as well that's that like that is what's happening people I, like I've never seen so many posts on social media about people putting out water for animals. Yeah. Like it's great that 
that people are, and hopefully more and more people are starting to think about what they can do, which is awesome. Even if they aren't down the coast, if, if they're somewhere else in another country, how can they reduce their impact? Yeah. And, and, and then hopefully this is the change. You know, it, it, if there's got to be something good come from this, it's that people are waking up that we have to change. Yeah. I read a, a really interesting comment by um, one of my colleagues recently, and he was being criticised for something. What was it? Um, maybe he drove a car somewhere or flew a plane. And he said, we all spend our carbon budget differently. And, you know, I think if everybody does their one small thing, that's 7.7 billion across the globe. You know, I think this is really a time where the whole world is waking up to what's happening, not only in Australia, but everywhere. And, you know, it would be, my dream is that everyone could start doing a minimum of one hour environmental community service a week. You know, that's nothing out of our week, really. And we could really help Mother Nature along instead of just, you know, taking her resources and, you know, it all being about us and our immediate pleasure. Um, if we were to start planting more trees, you know, doing beach cleans, like cleaning up the place, using less plastic, just the simple little things that we can all do, I think we could have a huge impact. But that has to be ingrained into each and every person on this planet. And if it takes these apocalyptic, horrific bushfires to wake up people to start that education, to start that initiative, you know, maybe maybe that's one, I mean, I don't want to say there's a good thing that's come out of these bushfires because it's horrific, but, you know, if we can move forward in a positive way and start doing good instead of just taking things that make our life easier, that would be, that would be a good thing. We've got to start looking after nature because, after all, nature will survive no matter what. It's us that will have to adapt to the change. Nature's just going to keep on doing her thing because she's pretty good at it. <laughs> she's been doing it for a while, that's for sure. And I think, you know, everyone loves the environment, doesn't it? Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that what we all do? Isn't, we, everybody goes to work. Everybody's waiting for their holidays. And then when they're on holidays, what do they do? They most of the time go and spend it in nature. Some people go yeah. shopping. But most people are going water skiing, surfing, hiking, yeah. you know, so we all love the environment. We just have to put those two things together. Yeah. You know, are we, what, we love this thing, which is the planet, and we need it, so how are we going to interact? How, how, where, where did you start your, so you've been with Surfrider for, what, just under 10 years, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I kind of fell into it by accident. My One of my day jobs is, ironically and very hypocritically, is as a flight attendant. And I was in Indonesia walking along the beach um, 20 years ago. And I remember walking on so much plastic going, this is just awful. This is, it, it really shocked me how there could be so much evidence of, of humans um, affecting such a beautiful beach and um, my my reaction to that was well I'm not coming back here this is dirty anyway 
next month I fly to India and I, I love the beach, I love the ocean. I went to the beach and again I saw the same thing. And then I thought, well, I'm not coming back here. And my world just kept getting smaller and smaller. And I realized, hey, hey, you stupid girl, it's, that's the wrong approach to take. You should be trying to clean this up or affect change in some way so that this isn't the norm, so that walking along a beach isn't where you're walking on plastic or where you're just seeing you know, little coloured bits of plastic instead of beautiful seashells or corals or sand or whatever. So um, I was on a trip in Honolulu and I was down at the beach and I can't help myself when I see something that's not, that's not supposed to be there, like plastic. I pick it up and I was sticking it in my cosy. And um, some lady said, oh, we're having the barbecue down the end there in about 10 minutes. And I was like, pardon me? And she said, you're with us, aren't you? And she was wearing a Surfrider t-shirt and I said, who are you? And she said, I'm with Surfrider. And um, I said, no, I'm, I'm just here on the beach. And she said, I'll come and join us. So I first of all met that group and they were a really inclusive, very friendly group of people. And I thought, wow, these are really nice volunteers. And um, But, you know, Americans are kind of like that. They do a lot of stewardship and a lot of good good stuff. They do a lot of crazy stuff, but, you know, they're into stewardship. That's kind of built into their school curriculum. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later when I was in Australia and I heard about a paddle out on Sydney Harbour for um, where we were campaigning to get the container deposit scheme. And I thought, wow, I, I believe in that. I don't think these bottles should just go to, into landfill. They, you know, we should get a refund and they should be recycled. So I went along with my daughter to that paddle out. And when I was there, it was wonderful Tim Silverwood from Take Three who introduced me to um, the then chair of Surfrider. And he said to me, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, from the South Coast. He said, oh, do you want to get involved with Surfrider? I said, oh, I'd love to. And he said, great, you're it. And that was it. That's how I fell into Surfrider. And ever since then, it's, it's just been something that's really consumed my life because, um, as I said, I love the ocean, but um, I love caring for the ocean and I'm not scared to talk to people and use my voice and I found I'm able to encourage others to care for the ocean too so you know it's all about waking others up to the fact that if we want a beautiful environment we it's up to us to look after it if we want a beautiful beach for our children for our grandchildren we have to be doing the right things now not just buying more plastic or you know drilling for more fossil fuels like there, there are better options out there. There are better options that are more compatible with nature. So that's, that's how I fell into it, and, and I love it. There, it's a really beautiful community of people. We're all volunteers. So It sounds like it was sort of meant to happen. It sounds like you just bumped into them in Hawaii by mistake. Yeah. And then you're just in Sydney, and, and you just bump into them again. It was like it was one of those things that you manifested somewhere there. Yeah. Well, I still draw a lot of inspiration from that group, and I, um, with my work with the um, with the airlines, I'll fly to their meetings, and um, I'm able to engage and connect the dots internationally, so that you know we're not just isolated. And all the wonderful environmental orgs that we've got here in Australia, you know, the same thing is happening all around the world. And a lot of people say to me, "Oh, it's just like." You know, why are there so many enviro groups now? Everybody's just reinventing the wheel. And, yeah, I think that is a product of our time now. A lot of people are 
doing new startups, but everybody cares in their own way. And if, you know, I was really lucky that I fell into a group that I resonated with that, that made me feel welcome. You know, I'm sure people just want to be doing the right thing. And I think we just have to all kind of get together because our mission is the same. Like you said, you said everyone, you know, when it's their holiday, they want to go out in the environment. That's such a beautiful thing because it's so relaxing. It's so calming. It takes us back to a nice, you know, we can hear our own breath when we're in the environment, when we're not, you know, confronted by screens and um, computers and phone calls and emails. Like just being out in nature is is, is so, um, it's regenerating. And I suppose that's what we should be looking for in the future, regeneration rather than, you know, not just trying to, patch up the mess that we've made over the past couple of hundred years but actually regenerating the planet so it's better for future generations you said it before like the planet's been doing looking after itself for a pretty long time and you know some of that history we we wouldn't have survived but the last you know however many thousands or millions of years it's been a pretty good it would have been a pretty good place to live so why don't we look at nature and then start working with it instead of trying to be this controller over it? So, yeah. and then, yeah, I think more and more people are, you know, starting to get that. And I, especially the kids with these climate strikes. Oh, they're so inspirational. I love them. I love them so much, you know. Like something you were just talking about then, you know, um, like, yeah, we've kind of brought the world to where it is now. And I'm not blaming anyone or saying it's a bad thing. Change is a good thing. I think we just have to make the change for the better and make the change good. And I think that's where these young kids have really seen it with new fresh eyes. And, you know, they yeah, they don't want to lose their phones. They don't want to lose the convenience that that has been afforded us. And, you know, we've worked to this point. I'm not saying... I'm not saying let's go back and, you know, um, like, were, were Get you... Get your horse and cart Yeah, out. yeah. I mean, that, that'd be great. A horse and cart would be cool, <laughs> but it's probably not practical, but it could be good. It would be good. Um, but uh, what, what the kids are doing is, is amazing now. I love the fact that they're able to use their voice, that they're not afraid to use their voice. They're very clever in their slogans, and um, I think we have to start listening to them and including them in the dialogue because, you know, we have old jaded eyes. Um, you know, I've been on this planet for almost 57 years and the first thing I'll do when I hit a problem is I'll ask one of my kids or ask someone much younger than me, hey, can you please help me? You know, like we've got to, we've got to work out a way forward that is compatible with nature. Mm. One of the highlights of 2019 for me was um, Greta Thornburg and probably not saying that right, but, but it just in general, the kids and the climate strikes. And I went to, a, to one of the climate strikes in Wollongong and there was a little girl speaking, I don't know her name, but she was eight years old. Like you say, I think they're just so much more, maybe they're more intelligent than we were. Maybe life, because they can see this massive problem, they've developed so much quicker. Um, I think when I was eight, all I probably wanted to do was go and play football with my friends or something, go to the beach. 
But that's a good thing too. That is a good thing. And maybe it's not good that they, they do have, it's definitely not good that they have this sort of pressure on them. But the uh, intelligence, and, and like you said, I, I just wrote a little blog last week, this week, about um, 50 things that you can do to re reduce climate change, um, and they're small things. And one of them is listen to kids. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've got this wonderful new ambassador, um, Izzy Raj Seppings. She was the young girl that was um, confronted by the police at Kirribilli House. Anyway, um, I heard her on, or actually via my social media posts, I was sent um, the morning TV interview that she had. She was such an articulate young girl. I just had to reach out to her. And um, she's now one of our Surfrider ambassadors. And I just, I'm so proud of her because um, she's come in from the climate angle, but she just loves the fact that she'll be able to um, hit another audience, the ocean-loving audience, and convey the message to them because I think everybody's kind of coming in with their skill set and with their, um, you know, with, with their own bent, and that's a good thing. I think we can learn from others and um, everybody can help out in their own way. We just have to pull up our sleeves and get out there and start doing it. You know, I would encourage everyone to get out and do something, no matter what it is. Just start doing something to make to make our planet a bit better. Um, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful Earth, and um, let's let's just keep making it better. It's it's, it's our house, you know. Hmm. Um, you wouldn't why you know why are we allowing all this garbage to be put into landfill? Why don't we just reduce the amount of garbage that we each create? You know, all the oceans are connected and everything leads to the sea and whatever's on land eventually makes its way to the ocean. I believe the answer lies in the ocean, believe it or not. And um, I think we have to look after the earth. And that sounds a little bit crazy, but that's, that's, that's where, that's where my <laughs> that's head is That's what it's today. all about. Yeah, you yeah. Just, yeah, we can't really argue with that. And, but speaking of the ocean, you're also a member of the expedition oh ex expedition what that is that's um a group of 300 women and we are sailing 30 legs around the the earth um, i'm sailing on leg nine in april which is from tahiti to the cook islands and uh so there'll be 10 women sailing on this 70 foot yacht called the ss travel edge and we'll be doing ocean microplastic research. So we are working with a couple of universities. We're working with um, the University of Plymouth in the UK and also University of Hawaii. And, um, for example, the professor that I met from University of Hawaii, his name is Nikolai Maximenko, and he studies um, the, the ocean eddies, like the exact currents of the ocean, so that he's able to send messages to the skipper to say, you know, there'll be a convergence of a lot of microplastic rubbish if you sail X degrees east or west or whatever. So he's pretty much charting the course between point A and B to maximise the garbage that we will collect on the way through. So we have these manta trawls and um, we'll be seeing what sort of um, rubbish is being 
um, is floating out there in the ocean in that soup, which is now um, in our ocean. Yeah, super rubbish. So is this to find like where the rubbish is coming from, what the sources are, what types it is and where it's ending up? Well, there's a lot of different um, research that's being conducted as a result of the X expedition. The, the basic premise is to make the unseen seen. So people kind of think they throw their rubbish away. You've all heard of where is away, there is no away. Um, a lot of it does end up in the ocean. Um, and the sun, the currents, um, the plastic hitting against the, the coastlines is breaking this plastic up into smaller and smaller pieces. This plastic is ending up um, on the seabed. Uh, marine creatures are eating it. It's travelling up the food chain. They have found evidence of a lot of microplastics and microfibers in in oysters, in e even in the zooxanthellae, in the in the tiny um, the tiny marine creatures, the krill, like they're all eating bits of this tiny bits of plastic. Every every wash load we do is getting rid of hundreds of thousands of pieces of microfibers. Even if you only wear linens and cottons and pure fabrics, uh, when I say pure fabrics, I mean natural garments, they're still held together with um, poly threads. And even these poly threads are releasing um, these tiny microfibers. And all this is going right down into the drains. I mean, there's even um, tiny micro microplastics in our toothpaste, our shampoos, our, con our conditioners, our personal grooming products. As we shower, this is all going down the drain. It's going into the oceans. So, um, you know, our oceans are just becoming, becoming this big plasticky soup. And yet when we look out to sea, it's, it's gorgeous and beautiful. And I look out to the ocean, I think it's so cleansing and it, and it is beautiful. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of plastics out there and we have to stop just using the ocean as a dump. So yeah, so going back to X Expedition, yeah, so we'll be doing all different types of research on the plastic. Yes, trying to find out where it comes from, but also just how much is out there. And by finding that out, we take that back to the universities and then we have the pictures, we have the hardcore evidence to show people this is what we found out in the ocean. We have to stop this. We just have to stop the plastic. We have to start protecting our ocean think of the future and start saying no to plastics. You're on there for how long? Is well, the, uh, the actual sale is approximately six days, but that will all depend on the winds, the currents and what's happening. But they allow about nine days for that particular leg. But some legs uh, go for as long as three weeks, three to four weeks. Mm. Um, I haven't crossing the Pacific or something like that would be well quite a... they started with crossing the Atlantic and they actually had a um, really rough seas um, and um, they're about to embark I think on leg five um, they'll be heading down towards uh, Panama I think is the next one um, but it, and all the women come from different backgrounds so some are PhDs, some are scientists, some are artists, some are filmmakers, storytellers, teachers. Like the women, there was ten thousand applicants. Wow. Yeah. So I'm I'm really 
I'm, I'm just so honored. I was really excited. I was really surprised. But, um, you know, I'm not afraid to use my voice and whatever I find out there, I'll be bringing it back to all of you mm -hmm. telling you what, what I've found anyway. And I was going to say you got a lucky, like a nice leg in Tahiti, but then Panama sounds pretty good yeah, too. <laughs> can, I, can I actually clarify? Um, when, when you applied, you had to nominate legs that you wanted to do, and I was desperate to do Galapagos to oh. Easter Island. And, um, and there was a, a pretty strict interview process, and uh, when I had my final interview, the, when, when we'd finished the interview, the lady had said, um, do you have any final questions you'd like to ask us? And I said, and it was an innocent question and one that was playing on my heart, how big do the waves get? And it was, pardon me? And I was like, well, how big do the waves get? And she goes, why do you ask that? And I had to be honest. I said, I'm scared of really big waves. And you could just see all of a sudden a wall went up. And it was like, yes, you're on to, uh-oh, we picked a dud. <laughs> and, um, and she said, what do you mean you're scared of waves? And I said, well, if the wave is taller than the mast, I'll be, I'll be scared. And, and that's, you know, my honest reaction. I, I will be. And um, she said, well, have you got another leg that you might like to consider? And I hadn't even thought of another leg. And I just said, Tahiti to the Cook Islands, because I was just thinking, well, um, whenever I've been to Tahiti and the Cook Islands, the oceans just looked gorgeous and peaceful. So, um, <laughs> so that's how I ended up on that one. And then I thought to myself, you big loser, why did you ask that question? But anyway. Um, that's pretty honest. I, I don't know, even a... It, like you would have to be crazy to not be afraid if the waves were the, were higher than the mast. Yeah. Look, and to be honest, on some of the the legs already, my friends that have been because like we had a meeting in London last year in October where we got to meet many of the other women off X expedition, and um, and I got to meet um, Emily Penn, who is the the woman that started the whole project. And these women are inspirational, like they're all so strong. And some of them are tiny, like they're, they're like little, tiny, little, like little, wee little gymnasts. And I thought, man, if these women aren't scared, you know, then I won't be either. And I've really drawn a lot of courage from them. Anyway, on that first leg, they had massive waves. And I've been shown photos from some of my friends who crossed that leg. And wow, I am so glad that I wasn't on that first leg because that one looked hairy. But, you know, whatever, whatever it will pose, it's all just one breath at a time. And, you know, whenever you are in a confronting situation, I think you just have to be in the moment and just breathe and you'll get through it. Fingers crossed. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, you don't get better if you're not um, taking a few risks here and there. Yep. And, and you've got to get out of your comfort zone. What, Absolutely. What do they say? Nothing good comes from a comfort zone. That's right. That's so, right. And it's pretty easy to get caught up in that comfort zone every day but I guess you know being a the national chair of surf rider you probably have to have a few in difficult conversations from time to time you have to speak in front of people and 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 just get used to that like they say public speaking is the scariest thing apart from dying well do you know what Paul I, I actually love and I really get off on the public speaking I find the speaking a wonderful thing and I'm really excited when I'm invited to go and speak to large corporations. For example, I recently spoke at one up in Sydney and there was only about 100 people in the room 
but it was being live broadcast to all their um, affiliates around Australia and around the world. And I said to the woman that was organising, I said, where are the people? I said, there's no one here. Like, I, you know, because I, I, I really feed off the audience. And um, she said, don't worry, they're watching you on the screens. So I had to kind of make believe in my head that there's thousands out there. And um, the message that, the message is really important. You have to get the message out there. Um, we can't keep going as we're going. We have to start encouraging people to move away from fossil fuels, to move away from single-use plastics. Our earth needs people to start talking about it. You have to have those difficult conversations. You know, like I actually even love it when I'm talking to people that work in, um, in petroleum because you can see they get cranky at you. But if you're honest and if you're speaking from the heart and you only want what's best for their children as well as my own, you know, how can you be wrong and how can they shoot you down? Yes, you know, shoot the enviros down, shoot the greenies down, but it's only making yourself look silly because the science is out there already. You know, you can do all your greenwashing, you can do all your, your media nonsense that's going on now, all that blaming this is not the time for blame. This is the time for work. We all have to get in there and work. My thing would be, everybody, get out there. Start one hour a week. One hour a week is easy and build up from there. Build up your enviro-conscious muscle. It's a good one to build. It's a good one to develop because you're only making the world better for your children. When the, um, you know, being called a greenie became an insult... But um, I actually really like it. I like it when people call me a greenie. Yeah. If someone calls me a tree hugger, I, I kind of think, what, how do you know? Because yeah. I always give a tree a pat when I walk past yeah. one. It's not an insult. No. And to care about in the ocean or in, to have clean water to drink or fresh air to breathe is not really a bad thing for anyone. Even the people who want to make a lot of money out of fossil fuels, they still need air and they still need water. And I'm sure they still enjoy the environment. They're probably just doing what they, you know, what pays the bills. Yeah, yeah. But do you feel like I know uh, I quite often feel, particularly with things that involve sustainability around food because of mm. their food forager. Absolutely. I, so I have to speak about this thing a lot. But I so, quite often feel silly because it's, it is so simple. Do you feel that you're, you're repeating yourself all the time and, and sometimes you question yourself, why am I saying the same thing again? But there's not much else to say because it's so easy. Do you know what, Paul? I think you just have to find different different ways to say it. Mm. it. It is the same thing. And sometimes, you know, I'll be in an interview and someone will ask me a question and I'll be thinking, really? It's, it's like, I think that's just so basic. And then I have to remember, it's like you're sitting in a huge football stadium you can sit on one end of the field the sun might be right in your eyes you'll see the play from that angle and I think with things like this you just have to keep moving yourself around the situation so that you're seeing it from another angle see it from the angle of the person that works in um, fossil in the fossil fuel industry try and get it from their perspective so that when you do have the conversation with them that you'll be speaking in a language that they understand you don't want to be blurting out the same message the same way all the time because then, like you said, you become a broken record. You become even boring to yourself. Um, so, Like you said, it's easy to, to take it for granted 
what you know. And like I had a, I asked a friend, another friend to come on um, this podcast and, and she knows a lot about um, actually about fire hazard reduction and mm-hmm. she knows a lot about wildlife and birds and if I don't know a bird or a plant or something, I usually take a photo and send her a message and she tells me what it is. And she was like, I don't know anything. Uh, like there's lots of, lots of experts out there. The thing is like there's always going to be someone that knows more than you about a particular, particular topic um, and you're never going to know everything, but that doesn't mean that you can't be of assistance to a lot of people. Yeah. And if you've been doing something for a long time, you probably know more about that topic than 90% of the population. Well, I I agree with you there. Um, A lot of self-doubt creeps into my thoughts when I think, oh, I don't have a degree in marine biology. I'm not a marine scientist. But you know what? I'll spend three to four hours a night researching um, papers from all around the world, from different oceans, studies that are happening from everywhere and because I'm passionate I think I think I'm okay and I can hold my own but the other thing we have to remember Paul is because we do care so much about it we we're actually quite a long way along and everybody is on a different part of the journey, and that's good. And sometimes I'll learn something and go, oh, my goodness, I'm such a dope. How did I not figure that one out? But we all learn from each other. And I think just don't be scared to use your voice. Don't be scared to show people how they can be a better citizen, how they – I know that sounds really American. I didn't mean that to come out that way. <laughs> but how they can be a better person in, in all aspects of life not just in the ocean, but when you're out hiking in the bush, if you see something that doesn't belong there or, you know, I, I don't know. And Don't doubt yourself. Just just go for it. We've only got one life. Where we are now is where we are. If we see something wrong, fix it. If we know something, act on it. And, yep, there'll always be someone that's smarter. Go knocking on their door. Do you know sometimes I've had like a radio interview and I thought, wow, I'm not going to be able to speak on that subject. So... I research who the top person is and I'll just text them and say, or I'll find them on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'll say, hey, I'm doing this radio interview. I'm so nervous. Can you please give me, in a nutshell, 10 things that I can say? And do you know how many times I've had super influential, top of the peer kind of professors help me out and I've learned so much from them. Like people are willing to help you out. And the other thing is, Scientists have often approached me saying, can you please get this message out? And I'll say, but I don't understand what you want to say. And they say, no, but you're not scared to say it. We'll tell you. And then they'll write it for me in an easy paragraph. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. And that's how you get, get the education out there amongst everybody because knowledge is power. I think you said that before, that everyone has their skill set. And, and yeah. you know, there might be – there's people who are – skilled in in a lab and and finding the data or doing you know i i went to university when i went to university i didn't really like the the lab stuff so much i just wanted to talk about it what was your degree in environmental science oh wonderful i wish i'd have done that i struggled with a a lot of 
different things. I loved like meteorology and, and I guess that's Beautiful. from from surfing where yeah. you just grow up looking weather at patterns. the weather map before yeah. all the, the websites came out and people could, you know, plan their day off five days in advance because the swell was coming and they knew what the wind was going to be. We had to look at the the isobars and, and all that on the mm. in the newspaper. But, yeah, I think... Everyone has their different skills, and and so, and if we're that's what if we're all joining together, then we're all getting that message across in different ways. Because some people, you know, will need to read the data and all that sort of stuff from a scientific perspective to say, oh yeah, like this is clear as anything to me. Some people just want to know how do I make a little change by how I shop. Or, you know, can and I, that's a could big I put one. a bit? Yeah, that's totally. a huge one. Well, we all eat. Yeah. And, and going back to, yeah, going back to Fair Food Forager, let's turn it back to Fair Food Forager. You know, it's what we put in our bodies and the way that we grow food and where we source our food, that's just so important. And I think in our current lifestyle, we're just used to thinking we can just grab it off the shelf and it'll be there. But I think we need to really start looking a bit beyond that as to where the food comes from because it's it's now proven that food that's grown close to where you live actually builds up your own immunity. Is that right, Paul? I, I mentioned to you when you first came over here this afternoon to do this podcast and we were talking about plants and how you just kind of, for me, you just throw it, you throw it all in there. You throw the, the native plants because they're, um, they've adapted to this climate and this place, so you don't have to work it out for them. They will, they'll work it out. And I think with food, it's the same too. I think we sort of stress out a little bit about, oh, I can't grow vegetables. But some of the best vegetables I've had out of my garden is when I've just thrown the 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 Scraps, tomato, yeah. you know, seeds out of on the, from the chopping board. And they and they and that tomato plant's grown up under a gum tree, and it hasn't had a single grub in it. You know, every wow. single tomato, and for for two or three months, it's produced thirty or forty tomatoes out of this tomato plant that's fallen over and growing underneath a gum tree. It's not in a in a beautiful, <laughs> lined up, perfect vegetable garden that I could take photos of and put on Gardening yeah. Australia. Wow. So, um, yeah, I actually I would really love to get some some permaculture uh, people on here and, and um, I've already hit up Costa to see if he's available at some point just to talk about that type of thing because I have a lot of people talk to me about the pressure that they put on themselves. I can't, I can't compost. Composting is so easy. Yeah, just give it a go. Just throw it all out there. Yeah. Don't put it right, right next to your bedroom or whatever, but just put it up in the backyard. You'll die, but my compost heap is out on the, the council verge and I just keep turning it and I'm sure my neighbours think I'm mental, but, you know, there's a little avocado tree growing out of there now, a few tomatoes and quite a few herbs and bits and pieces and a few pumpkins. Pumpkins. Um, yeah, and the, the neighbours just kind of take it as they walk past and I say, yeah, take whatever you want, like... It's it's uh, community ground anyway, so that's right. And like you said before, I think you know we begun talk, talking about the the bushfires and uh, you know waking up every day and seeing smoke and not being able to see the mountains or, or the ocean clearly. It really does make you think that 
the, sh- the way that we've been eating oranges from California when you live in Sydney. Oh, that's mental. And all this sort of stuff with mental. the food system. That mm. There's a lot of things that we can just grow in our own garden. In a, yeah. Even in a pot on the balcony, yeah. you can, everyone can grow some mint. Yes. You, all you have to do is remember to water mint and, um, and it will grow. You know, and there's a lot of plants like that that get, start off with the bulletproof stuff. Yeah. You know, silver beet and, and mint and, and different herbs. Yes. Rosemary is beautiful. Just, so, easy to, so easy to grow. And so good for you. You can make the best teas out of rosemary. And pick a little metal. bit, let it go to seed, yeah. let it grow somewhere else in the garden. Take some cuttings from someone else, you know. Um, you don't have to be. I, I think I'm a big advocate of that. You don't have to be really skilled at any of this stuff. Just yeah. learn to live with it yeah. and don't be a perfectionist. Well, you can be a perfectionist if you want, but um, I'm certainly yeah. no perfectionist and just enjoy watching what happens yeah. and he's adapt got, with it. And he's got an amazing garden, by the way. It is, it's first class. It's great. It's, it's my own little forest and um, it keeps the house cool. So what other reason, you know, and birds, lots of birds. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess um, I don't know how long that is, but that's probably about 45 minutes or so. Yeah. Let's, um, let's leave it there. Maybe we can come back and do part two. Have you got anything else that you, you want to close off with in these times of change? Well, my, the message that I'd love to say to everybody is just get out there and do something, anything. You know, if everybody did something, it would be so much better. Look after the oceans, reduce your plastic footprint, and be kind to one another. That's it. Yeah, definitely. Just don't be afraid to give something a go and, and utilise whatever skills you have. Oh, hey, I thought of another thing. You know, Surfrider... You don't have to be a surfer, so come and join us. Like I, I surf like a Siamese cat in a washing machine. I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. But I love the ocean. So if you love the ocean, come join us. That's right. You don't have to be a surfer to um, to you know educate people on the ocean or to be doing beach cleanups or and and you even told me you. I don't know if I'm letting a cat out of the bag, but you're even talking about planting trees and things yes. now too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely going and helping the communities. We've got a project coming up where we'll be um, inviting all ocean lovers, surfers, board rider clubs to come down to the um, communities that have been affected by by these horrible bushfires and bring your tools, bring your hammers, your nails, um, bring your cash, come spend it in those towns and let's just, we're going to be going around and saying, hey, who needs a veranda built? Who needs who needs some work? You know, who needs their bathtub scrubbed or whatever. Just it, it doesn't you don't have to be a handyman. You can be a lady that bakes, you know, just do a good turn, you know, and um literally do a good turn. That sounds like a, a pretty good invite, I'd say, to to help in and then someone else will hopefully be telling you, you go and do this, you, you go and do that. What's your skill? We need your help yeah. cleaning bathtubs or yeah. put, I, building a balcony. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure everyone's got some skill yeah. that can be utilised in yeah. those communities. And like you said, even just going down there and spending your money in the yeah. town. But showing care, you know, showing that it wasn't just, you know, that the world did hear what's happened to them and, you know, get in there and offer 
can I sweep your house? Can I do something to help you? You know. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Paul. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed today. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yep. Thanks for joining the uh, Fair Food Forager podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you and see you next time on the Fair Food Forager podcast and special mention to Ash Groomwald for supplying his super cool tunes. See you next time.